This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to HeyYA Extra Credit. Every other week, opposite the main HeyYA podcast, we'll bring you a short-form podcast with backlist recommendations, themed book lists, news, interviews, or other things you need to know about the YA world. I'm Sarah Hannah Gomez. I'm recording on Monday, January 11th, 2021, which has hella 2020 energy, but let's hope that doesn't continue. So I love pairings. Food and wine, obviously, but also ice cream and mix-ins for milkshakes or ice cream and toppings or two flavors of ice cream. And my personal favorite and special talent, cheese and potato chips, because when you're gluten-free, crackers are expensive, but potato chips are not. So fancy cheese and potato chips are my jam. But I'm not here to give you cheese and potato chip recommendations. You can send me a message on Twitter anytime and I'll give you some recs. Today's pairings are picture books and YA. So I read a lot of picture books in 2020, partly because it's my job, because I teach children's literature at a university, and partly because 2020 was full of, you know, depression, malaise, trauma, drudgery, and my brain needed something different to do. So I'm hesitant to say I needed an easy read or I needed an escapist read because I don't like that terminology. I feel like it's applied a lot to YA, which listeners of this podcast probably no, or you wouldn't be listening. And because I don't think picture books are necessarily easy. The picture book class I took during my master's program was the hardest class I'd ever taken in my academic life. And that includes a neuroscience class that I took as an undergrad. So as someone who is not primarily visually oriented, I find picture books actually really challenging to read. Same with graphic novels. And it's just a different type of literacy that is a skill all its own that you have to practice. But that's what my brain needed was a new way of operating last year. So read tons of YA as usual, but also read a lot of picture books. So I think people of all ages can enjoy picture books. I'm not a fan of like fake children's picture books that are actually for grownups, but I think real picture books can be very appealing to grownups. And that's also ideal because if you have kids, you're going to be reading a book like a million times. But even if you don't have kids, if you just want something good to read, I highly recommend the picture books I'm going to tell you about, and I am pairing them with YA books. First, I want to thank today's sponsor, You Have a Match by Emma Lord. When Abby signs up for a DNA service, it's mainly to give her friend and secret love interest Leo a nudge, but she shockingly discovers she's a sister to shimmery-haired Instagram star Savannah Tully. It's hard to believe they're from the same planet, never mind the same parents. They make a plan to meet up at summer camp and figure out why Abby's parents gave up Savvy for adoption. But things never go as planned, do they? Sophie Gonzalez called this book heartfelt and engaging. Booklist called it a bright summer tale of connection and self-discovery. That's You Have a Match by Emma Lord. Okay, so a note on these pairings. I did not put them together based on content. Like, it's not plot for plot. It's not Cinderella with Cinderella. It's not these both take place in Japan. 
It's more about themes, language, motifs, style. So I think, for lack of a better term, feel. They have similar feels. They might seem strange at first, or it might seem like I'm, you know, kind of maybe erasing the identity in one book when I bring up the other. But the idea is just that I think thematically and tonally, they make sense together, not that they are about the exact same thing. So keep that in mind. And like I said, picture books should be for everyone. So if you haven't read the picture book, but you've read the YA, now you know you'll probably like it. If you've read the picture book and you liked it, go for the YA. If you haven't read either, read them both because picture books are wonderful. And so is YA. I will pretty much always choose both of those over books for grownups. Grownups is my own growth area. So my first pairing is Ballet Ball by Aaron Dion and Jillian Flint. So this one is about Nini, who hates baseball. She hates it primarily because it's not ballet, not because it is baseball. She really hates that her mom signed her up to play, so now she has to go to practice. She's that kid who just like goes to baseball practice because she's told to, kind of zones out in the outfield, doesn't feel particularly gifted at it. Her coach comes to talk to her, and then she gets some sparkly shoelaces because that makes everything better. And she learns that she can actually use some of her ballet moves to be a good baseball player. And that makes her realize that perhaps you can be good at both sports and dance and enjoy them both. So that's Ballet Ball by Erin Dion and Jillian Flint. And I'm pairing that with Goldfish by Nat Lertzema. It is about Lou Brown, who is one of the fastest swimmers in her county. She's on her way to the Olympic time trials. And she's there with her best friend. They're both going to make it. They're going to be Olympic teammates. And then she totally bombs the race and she is completely out dead last. So now her friend has done a great job at the Olympic trials. And when Lou heads back to school, it's like she doesn't exist. The entire team won't talk to her, not even the coach. So something she's worked for her entire life is just out of reach completely now for her. So she has to find a way to start over. And the way she starts over is sort of by accident and sort of weird. And it turns out to be with underwater synchronized swimming dance with boys. So there's a lot of awkwardness happening. So I read this book um, soon after it came out in the U.S. I don't know if it had maybe been out a few years earlier in the U.K. I would have to look that up and I forgot. But I really loved it. It's funny. So there's very serious stuff going on as far as having your dreams crushed with this thing you've worked for your entire life. But it really just really basks in the sports also, which I never thought I would like so much because I was not a sports person growing up. I was more of a nini in that way, but I also didn't like dancing. But I actually just really really loved this. I like that it kind of messes with typical gendered interests in sports because you have boys who are leading this synchronized swimming and um, a girl who's more of the athletic one who is kind of brought in to like teach them how to get into shape. So it's it's just a really fun read. Um, that is Goldfish by Nat Lertzema. My next pick is Sulwe by Lupita Youngo and Vashti Harrison. So this one came out about two years ago. It's about a little girl named Sulwe who has skin the color of midnight. She's darker than everyone in her family, anyone at her school, everyone in the whole world, she thinks. So one night, she's getting ready for bed, and she's just kind of praying, like, I want to wake up and be lighter. That's what's beautiful. That's what I want to be. Thanks to a star, she has taken on a little journey and learns just how beautiful being dark can be. So it is 
on one level, just a really sweet story about learning to love who you are and going on an adventure with a star. But it also deals with colorism in a very real way, because much as we want children to love themselves, it is true that darker Black children are usually told that they are not as beautiful as their light-skinned siblings or friends or classmates or neighbors. So it really is dealing with stuff that real kids are having to see, and also just the illustrations are gorgeous. I feel like I don't need to tell people who Vashti Harrison is, but if you don't know of her, go to her Instagram. Her illustrations are absolutely amazing for everything she does. So that's Sulwe by Lupita Youngo and Vashti Harrison. And I'm pairing that with the YA Miss Meteor by Taylor K. Mejia and Anna Marie McLemore. So that one takes place in Meteor, New Mexico. It is about a beauty pageant that, unsurprisingly to anyone in the Western world, probably, usually the tiara goes to light-skinned, light-haired, skinny girls. And there's a girl now who wants to be a person who wins that, even though she is not those things. She's Latina, but she's ready to come in and win this pageant. There is also some stardust and space magic, I saw someone describe it as, and I couldn't think of a better term than that. So you have those similar elements to Sulwe as far as a touch of magic to teach you a little bit more about this very real issue, although I don't want to reduce this to an issue book because it is two powerhouse authors that you probably know really well for their fantasy and magic realism. But they both have that similar little touch of stardust. So that's Miss Meteor by Taylor K. Mejia and Anna Marie McLemore. My next pairing has the picture book Not My Girl by Margaret Pokyuk Fenton and Christy Jordan Fenton, illustrated by Gabrielle Grimard. So the book Fatty Legs might be familiar to people who do a lot of middle grade or graphic novel reading. It's a memoir of an Inuit girl who was taken to a residential school where, as I hope everyone listening knows, North Americans essentially tried to beat the Native out of Native children and make them acceptable to white society. They were very violent places, usually run by nuns or other um, church figures. And so Fatty Legs is her middle grade full memoir, but there are two picture books about that same time period. This is the second one in that duo. And I found it striking partly because it didn't just dwell on the trauma of the school. The Fatty Legs certainly does, and the other picture book, When I Was Eight, does. But I think this one is almost more heartbreaking because it's about going home and no longer fitting in there. So it's about Margaret coming back from school And she has forgotten even how to speak her first language. That's how good those schools were at totally ripping those children from their heritage. And her mom sees her and is like, this is not my child. She just straight out, this is not my girl. Her hair is wrong. She's gotten older. She can't even understand me. I can't understand her. It is not my girl. And Margaret herself like hasn't eaten her mother's food in years. She can't stomach it. She can't remember how to speak. She doesn't have friends to play with. So it's this really heartbreaking disconnect between a mother and a daughter. But it's ultimately also about finding a way to communicate again and get to know her culture and her family and community again. 
and kind of recover from the very traumatic experience of the residential school, which is not mentioned too much in the book, but you can get more of that in her full memoir or in the other picture book. So I wanted to pair that with Butterfly Yellow by Tinga Lai. So at the end of the Vietnam War, Hung takes her little brother Lin to the airport because they want to get to safety in America. He is ripped out of her arms and taken to America, and she is left behind in Vietnam. So six years later, she has finally made her way to Texas, and she's certain that's where her brother is. She's been trying to get there for years. She is ready to get him back to rebuild their family. She doesn't know how she's going to find him, and she doesn't speak English. So lucky for her, or maybe not so lucky, she meets a cowboy. His name is Leroy. He is also kind of running from the big city because he has these rodeo dreams, and he says he will help her. So they get to the home of his adoptive parents, and kind of like Margaret and her mom in Not My Girl, her brother has no idea who she is. He has, for the last six years, grown up as an American child. He's, you know, maybe about seven, I think. So he has no idea who she is or why she is beside herself in tears when she sees him. So she has to find a way to get him to, if not remember her, remember her, because you can't ask a baby to remember when they were really little, but to honor their relationship that was severed without her consent. One of the things I really love about this book, aside from it just being a good story, is the way that the author played with language. So as Hung is learning English, She's translating all the words she hears into Vietnamese phonemes, trying to make sense of them. So for one thing, when you see it on the page, you see all of the diacritics that might take a while to get used to. But she also breaks up the words into smaller words so that she can make sense of them in Vietnamese. And I just thought that was really interesting to read. Like the linguistic play is really fascinating. And it was really humbling to you know, kind of be reminded how English is really, really hard to learn. New languages in general, when you're not really little, hard to learn, but especially English. It made me really glad that English was my first language. And I just thought it was really creatively interesting to do it that way. And it just really drives home the the trauma of being in a new country, all alone, missing your family, and having to make sense of a new language all at the same time. Also, Leroy the Cowboy is just a great character, so it switches back and forth between their perspectives, which is awesome. So that's Butterfly Yellow by Thing An Lai. My next pick is We Are Water Protectors by Carol Lindstrom, illustrated by Michaela Goad. So this one is a poem that is about the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's also not in a way. It's about a lot of things. It characterizes the pipeline as a monster, sort of like a black, snaky monster. And it's a poem about having to protect your people and your land from being destroyed by this monster, which, again, I hope listeners are familiar with the No Dapple um, Standing Rock movement. But even if you're not, if you've seen Fern Gully or just you know, existed for a minute, you, I hope, know that poison is not good for the environment. So this is a really beautiful, like visually and in terms of the poem, way of looking at the potential damage that poison or, you know, a pipeline can do to a people and why it's so important to protect it. And I'm pairing that with Winter Keep by Kristen Kishore. 
So if you've read Graceling, this is a return to the world of Graceling. So it's book four in the series. They all kind of roughly fit together. You can somewhat read them out of order if you want to, but I think they make for a better collection if you read them in order. I got to read a really early copy of Winterkeep before it was in galleys, and I was obsessed. If you're going to read anything before it, I would go with Bitter Blue because the book Bitter Blue, the character is one of the main characters in Winterkeep. But she is now older and she's going to a new continent and a new country. And that new country is Winterkeep. So it is, you know, unlike Bitter Blue's land, it is a democratic republic, not a monarchy. And there are telepathic foxes. There are these cool, you know, ships that are, I guess, dirigibles is the closest you could you could maybe call them. It's just a really amazing land, and she and her envoy are kind of astonished that this, you know, new place is just so much more forward than they are in many ways. We also have a character named Lovisa who lives in Winterkeep and is the daughter of really high-powered parents who are in opposing political parties that are both vying for control of Winterkeep. So she is noticing some things that are happening in the literal environment as far as energy and in the more you know political and social environment in Winterkeep and has to find a way to kind of process that as a teen girl and figure out how she can stop some pretty horrendous things from happening. And luckily, she will run into Bitter Blue, who herself as a teen girl had to all of a sudden learn how to be a queen and keep a lot of things in line. So that's Winterkeep by Kristen Kishore. My next pairing is Your Name is a Song by Jamila Tompkins Bigelow. It is a beautiful, super colorful, light book about a little girl who gets picked up from school, and she tells her mother she never wants to go back because they could not pronounce her name. And her mother, instead of marching right in and telling the teacher to go shove it, although maybe she does off the page, I feel like she's the kind of mom who would, and every mom should be the kind of mom who would. You should pronounce kids' names right. So they're walking home from school. And instead of having a you know didactic story about why it's important to honor people's names, even though it is, she makes it almost a game. It's sort of like a you know my favorite things moment in the sound of music. So they start talking about all of the names of the children in this girl's class that have African roots, Latin roots, Middle Eastern roots, Hebrew roots, just about every kind of name you can imagine. It gives you a quick little pronunciation guide so that you know how to say it if you're doing a read aloud. And then she just talks about the different feelings and meanings and sounds that are associated with that name. It is beautiful. I absolutely loved it. And then the girl goes back to school and is empowered enough to tell her teacher and her classmates, like, no, this is this is my name. You're going to say it right. And I'm going to say all of your names right. So I really love that it ends on that empowering note. So it's not just all names are lovely, the end, but it actually goes back to the real issue, which is the way that not using someone's name and not saying it right can be very dehumanizing, especially if you're corrected multiple times. It reminded me of a time that I kept saying Isabel for a girl named Isabel, and I, 10 plus years later, still feel terrible about that. So sorry to Isabel if she's listening, but also just don't be that person. So that's Your Name is a Song by Jamila Tompkins Bigelow. 
I'm pairing that with Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adub Karam. I am so excited about the sequel to this one that came out in 2020. This first book is about Darius Kellner, who is a nerd. He speaks better Klingon than Farsi. And so he's a little eh, about going to Iran, where his family is from. It's also kind of a a big thing because he's dealing with clinical depression already, and he doesn't have kind of the the best social life at home. So it's not just, oh my god, I'm going to this new place, but also I have these very real things going on with me. But of course, he has to go, and he's getting to meet his grandparents and the rest of his mom's family. And then he meets a boy next door named Sorab, who can speak some English and takes Darius under his wing, brings him out so that he can be involved in you know teen social life. He makes sure everyone around him speak English so that Darius can always understand what's going on. He's just a really caring friend immediately. He also calls Darius Daryush, which is the Persian pronunciation of his name. And even though Darius never thought of himself as Daryush because he's grown up in the U.S. and always said his name the anglicized way, something about Sarab telling him that, a boy who immediately, you know, with no kind of ulterior motives or anything, was like, you will be my friend because that's what I'm going to be to you because you're here and I want to show you around and I want to make you feel welcome. And so it's this really lovely book with some funny moments. And I love when books about mental illness can find ways to be funny without making a joke of the illness. Because I think those of us with mental illness probably, I think, are all kind of familiar with ways we can joke about it, even though it's also very real. So I think Adib Karam did an amazing job with that element of the book. And I also just love how Darius gets to find himself in Iran. And it's not this sort of stripping away of his American self or this like tourism version. It's just, oh, this is a side of me I never really got to meet before Sarab. And now I can sort of integrate that into the person I already was. So that's Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adib Karam. My next pairing starts with Frybread by Kevin Noble Maillard, illustrated by Juana Martinez Neal. So this is one where I was like, oh yeah, Frybread. I ate that all the time until I learned about celiac disease. It's so delicious. I love my Indian tacos. And then I go back and get another one and put honey and powdered sugar on it at the end. Having grown up my entire life in Arizona, I actually had no idea that fry bread was so common among so many other native nations. I thought it was mostly a Southwest thing. My bad. So I really learned a lot. This is what I mean about picture books is you'd be surprised how much you learn as an adult. I also didn't know that fry bread is in some ways matzah. It is bread of affliction. It is bread of necessity. It is bread of hardship because fry bread came to be not from some ancient tradition where we like to kind of attach these weird sentimental pseudo-spiritual things to native cultures when we talk about them. Fry bread comes from being subjected to horrible treatment by the U.S. government and being forced to then rely on the U.S. government while the U.S. government stole their homeland, ruined their land, took away their livelihoods, their animals, their environment, and were like, well, here, have some flour so that you don't die. So fry bread was developed out of having basically no other food but flour and having to figure out something to do with it. 
The book isn't as depressing as I'm making it sound, although it is, like I said, I can't think of a better term than bread of affliction to borrow from what I say every year at our Passover Seder. But the book talks about how it is part of that traumatic history, but also how since the 150 or so, actually, I guess closer to 200 years of active moving of Native peoples, we've obviously been doing terrible things to them for many more hundreds of years. But I want to say it's about 200 years of this active relocating, rehoming of people, forcible rehoming. And I learned so much here about how it's a part of so many nations. And in some ways, it's the same as far as making things out of necessity. It's also just like any other cultural food, like in, you know, in our family, we add this to it. In our family, we cook it this way. So he kind of shares how different nations have this same base flour and do slightly different things with it, but also how that connects different Native nations to each other with that shared history. Juana Martinez-Neal is a Peruvian illustrator who is um, part Indigenous Peruvian. Her illustrations are amazing. I would gladly put her art all over my wall. She has this way of doing things that are, you would almost think them cute, but they're not, which is good because cute isn't really my favorite thing in picture books. So it's this stuff you could almost call cute, but somehow it's just like too artistic and too detailed. She has such fine detail to just be cutesy. So that's Fry Bread by Kevin Noble Maylard and Juana Martinez-Neal. I'm pairing that with Daughters of Jubilation by Carolee Corthran. This is a book I just finished reading recently. It takes place in 1962, which means slavery was less than a century ago. And at one point, our main character, Evie, actually meets a woman who is celebrating her 101st birthday. So she was alive as a slave. Like this woman was born a slave. And Evelyn Deschamps, the main character of this book, is meeting this woman who, for all that Jim Crow South is not so great right now, it's still kind of unfathomable to Evie that she could be meeting someone who was born as someone else's property. So that is one element that you kind of are made to think is just a sort of like, oh, well, yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, but that woman, her boyfriend's great aunt, I believe becomes someone who sort of teaches Evie something about herself, which is that in Evie's family, women have a sort of magic that they call jubilation. And it's something that's kind of hard to control. It doesn't have, you know, rhyming spells and a magic wand or anything like that. It can kind of come out too much if you have, if you're experiencing heightened fear or anxiety or excitement or whatever, like kind of strong feeling you're experiencing. So sometimes it might come out and it means, you know, slamming a door really hard or knocking something over, but you can kind of learn how to control and shape it and direct it where you need to as you become more comfortable with it. Evie is just trying to live her life. She has a new boyfriend. They're falling in love. She's having a great summer. Then someone from her past comes and is stalking her. And that's where things start to get ugly. And what you learn about jubilation is it is something that also comes from trauma. It's not just magic in a sort of fun way that we see in lots of um, high fantasy books, especially where it's just a skill and you practice it and it's so nice and it's not necessarily hard won. Jubilation is something that comes out of pain. It is something that enslaved women either developed or evolved to deal with the trauma they were experiencing by being enslaved. 
So it's this, it's really rough. And yet it's also, this book has so much light, like falling in love and no cliches about it. I am not a fan of romance in the YA I read. And this didn't even bother me because it's just so giddy. It's so like, we're sneaking around. Ah, it's so much fun. It just feels very real. But then there's very, very dark stuff as well. But I think it's, it's balanced really well. So that is my pick for going with Frybread, Daughters of Jubilation by Kara Lee Corthran. My last pairing is A Different Pond by Bofie and illustrated by T-Boy. And that is a really quiet picture book about Bofi's own childhood when he would wake up very, very early because his father worked long days. His father was an immigrant. And they would go to their pond in Minnesota, where they lived, and go fishing. And unlike other kind of father-son bonding moments, this wasn't just like fun fishing, catch and release fishing. This was fish that they were going to eat because it was part of part of their food. They had to catch food because food's expensive and it kind of supplements your grocery money, essentially. And culturally, they, you know, fish recipes are a thing. So in the picture book, they they have all these quiet moments. Sometimes it's just standing next to each other being silent, but often the little boy listens to his father tell stories about his own childhood and a pond in his own homeland of Vietnam. And so you have this sort of double story going on, a story within a story, and it just has these nice, like, sort of dark because it's early morning in the Midwest in, you know, a cold, cold I don't know that I could handle the cold place. So dark, but not in like a drab and dreary way, just in a sort of somber, quiet sort of dark as they fish together. But it's just this really beautiful, quiet bonding moment between a father and a son. And I really like it. So that's A Different Pond by Bao Fi and illustrated by T. Boy. And I'm going to pair that with Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. So to read you the little cover flap here, Felix Love has never been in love, and yes, he's painfully aware of the irony. He desperately wants to know what it's like and why it seems so easy for everyone but him to find someone. What's worse than that, even though he's proud of his identity, Felix also secretly fears that he's one marginalization too many, black, queer, and transgender, to ever get his own happily ever after. When an anonymous student begins sending him transphobic messages, after publicly posting Felix's dead name alongside images of him before he transitioned, Felix comes up with a plan for revenge. What he didn't count on, his catfish scenario landing him in a quasi-love triangle. But as he navigates his complicated feelings, Felix begins a journey of questioning and self-discovery that helps redefine his most important relationship, how he feels about himself. So I think this book goes really well with A Different Pond because it also has a thread of family dynamics going through the plot. So yes, there's no catfishing in A Different Pond, and I didn't pair them because of fishing and the word catfishing. And I actually didn't think of that until right now. Look at me. But they both have father-son relationships, and they both have these ways that sons are considering how how to understand themselves, how to define themselves, how to be themselves, and also understand the ways their fathers made them who they are and their fathers' lives affect their own lives. So I think those make for a good pairing. And that's Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. 
So that's all for this week. Thanks again to our sponsor, You Have a Match by Emma Lord. Thank you so, so much to the audio editors here at Book Riot, Jen Zink and Dan Baker, who clean up a lot of terrible stuff, especially me today, because I made a hot mess. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at shgmclicious, on Instagram again at bookishgirlfit, and Kelly and I will be back here next week with a full-length episode. Until then, happy reading.